Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is September 4th, 2018. So uh, our first podcast of the month of September and joining me, Michael Warren of the Weekly Standard. Well, I feel like it's like a new season. So uh, we're ready to go, right? I mean, there's there's that dividing line, Labor Day, you know, summer's over. And that, back, to, back and, to the grind. And this is the series premiere. So yeah. the, the, the ratings better be good on this or we're going to get canceled. So. Well, yeah, let loose the dogs are crazy. So where <laughs> where do we start today? You have a very interesting piece about uh, California's new primary. I want to get to that. The Kavanaugh hearing starts today, so uh, we're in for several days of uh, Kabuki theater. Um, well, let's just start by by looking back at the weekend, uh, the really extraordinary uh, ceremonies and, uh, and and memorial services for for John McCain, and, and the the fact that it. it it really did sort of turn into a long-running, whether intentional or not, critique of of the era of Donald Trump. I really thought that one of the things that added to the, uh, you know, added to the poignancy of it was that it it really seemed to mark the passing of an era. There was all of this discussion of bipartisanship and civility and honor and courage, and it really seemed like now some people think it's a call to arms. I really thought it was. It was more a a ceremony of marking all the things that we have lost in American politics. And I know you, uh, uh, I, I caught you on CNN the other morning uh, commenting on all of this. Uh, so th- thoughts in the retrospective of, of the weekend of McCain. Um, well, f- sort of the, the big picture of this all, I was having um, uh, on, on Labor Day, um, so I, I actually live slightly outside the Beltway. So I get to claim that I'm I'm outside the Beltway uh, here in Washington because I live about um, two miles from <laughs> Interstate 495. So um, it, and I live in a community that is not um, entirely consumed by sort of the political world. A lot of a lot of military and ex-military um, folks uh, in Fairfax County. So uh, not quite. Not quite full real America, but I, I like to claim that I sort of can get a little bit of a pulse of what's going on. And um, I was having um, beers at the end of the day last last night um, with uh, a couple of my neighbors, and I was struck by one of them, not particularly political, um, who said that you know it was a it wasn't the sort of the, the 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 funeral in particular on on Saturday at the National Cathedral. Um, it wasn't his takeaway wasn't the sense that it was like this the the way that senators and people in Washington talk about bipartisanship, which is really kind of um, this kind of almost hokey. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh, you know, my friends on the other side of the aisle, and um, we all get together, and of course, it's all it's all thrown away. Like the next time there's actually something controversial that that people disagree about, um, but. But he he picked up on the sense that that it used to be that there were there were things that united us and whether it's patriotism, um, a, a sense of service, uh, a sense that um, put all of those other things that we disagree about aside that, that we all sort of um, uh, we all sort of come together as one country and value the same things and that what he saw in these memorial services for McCain was sort of um, an appreciation. You know, he was struck by how presidents from both parties were at the funeral and, and that would that would never happen. But but this sort of this yeah. man, John McCain, in this moment sort of brought those people together. And, and the thing that I would add to what my astute neighbor pointed out was – there seemed to be there, there was something missing, even though 
um, Ivanka Trump and, and Jared Kushner and members of the Trump administration were there. The the big thing that was missing was the current president. I know he wasn't asked to be there, um, but that was striking to me that he was on the outside of something that to somebody who's not in – I mean, it, it, you could look at it one way as seeming like a big insidery kind of love mm-hmm. fest. But for somebody who's not inside, who was just looking at it from the outside, um, it looked like sort of the, the country kind of coming together, at least seeing it really that. Did. And, no, it, and it, one it, person it, it, was missing there. Yeah, it, it did feel uh, like that extraordinary celebration and, and the fact that that he was he was he was excluded. But uh, it was also striking to me. There were many things. I, I can't remember the last time I actually sat through uh, a televised funeral. And uh, and, I, and I thought that most of the speakers were were uh, unusually eloquent, uh, you know, even though I have a high degree of you know skepticism about these sorts of things. But it did strike me as as you were listening to all of the all week long. Uh, the 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 you know, commentary on John McCain's life and the values and what he represented that this we're still living through an era in which his own party has decisively rejected what he stood for and who he was in their embrace of Trumpism and that that was sort of a stark reminder. Um, I also see a lot of uh, criticism online of uh, Meghan McCain for her uh, her passionate eulogy for her father, which, by the way, I thought was completely appropriate in in every sense. But there was that moment, which was, uh, we use this word unprecedented a lot, but a lot of people said they can never recall um, the spontaneous outburst of applause during a funeral. You know, her comment that, you know, America doesn't need to be made great because it's always been great. And, you know, that 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 you had all of these people who immediately rose to that. I mean, responded to that. Uh, uh, there was... Uh, and and I, and and I think the the power of it is perhaps reflected in some of the bitter commentary that you saw. Well, let's talk well, about. Can, what can I say something real quick, sure, sure, Charlie, about about that line from Megan McCain? I thought it was great. Yeah. It was a great moment, and I was really actually. Uh, uh, I was heartened to see a bunch of liberal Democrats stand up and clap at the idea that America has always been great. Um, it's, I mean, it, and, and yeah. not being sarcastic about this. I mean, this if this does, which I'm not holding my breath, but if this does sort of um, uh, kill a little bit of the um, uh, of the sort of our country is a terrible place, that idea on the left, that would be all for the good. But I do think that um, it, 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 what what Meghan McCain said and the idea that she shouldn't have said it because she brought politics into this no, funeral. Ridiculous. I thought that was ridiculous because in, in the whole idea, oh, well, uh, Trump was asked not to be there. Let's return to the locus of this whole sort of back and forth between the late Senator John McCain and Donald Trump. It all started with Donald Trump. I would just let's, let's get to the, the, the nut yeah. of it. It all started with, with Donald Trump denigrating John McCain's heroism. And I th- and what I think was a, a very kind of a dirty play at a certain um, a type of, uh, of veteran. A lot of Vietnam veterans, there are a lot of Vietnam veterans in general, but a lot of Vietnam veterans don't like John McCain. He's ornery. He's, he, and, and there was a sort of conspiracy theory that he what he wasn't even um, as it, his his what happened in Hanoi was not as heroic. And I think that was a sort of a dirty kind of a gutter level play at that type. To that. And, yeah. and, and um, I just thought, I thought it was disgusting at the time. It's still disgusting. And Megan McCain can say whatever that, whatever she wants at, at, at a funeral for her father um, and, and, uh, and, and bully for her. 
I and I and I thought it was it was it was very powerful. Of course, uh, others have commented on the irony of you know all those people in in the church who are celebrating you know many of these values, and yet they will go out and then they will enable them. They will enable uh, the incivility, or they will support the kinds of politics that 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 whole service was really designed to to critique. And and that moment of coming together. You really had the sense that as powerful as it was, it would have a very, very short shelf life. And I think we're probably going to see that as early as as today. Well, let's talk about today. The Kavanaugh hearings begin, obviously, uh, huge stakes uh, for both uh, the Democrats and Republicans. I used the phrase kabuki dance before because you pretty much know exactly how it's going to play out, what Kavanaugh is going to say, balls and strikes, you know, uh, in, in independent, uh, honest broker. Uh, the Democrats are going to portray this as the you know end of the uh, of, you know end of the world as we know it. Uh, um, but at the moment, it appears with all, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds about which documents were released and when they were released. It, it seems overwhelmingly likely that at the end of this process, at the end of the the kabuki dance, that uh, the Kavanaugh will be confirmed. Are you picking up anything that challenges that conventional wisdom? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's no. no other answer to that. It's he he's going to get through. Now, I guess right now, like as we're speaking, the Democrats are holding things up and objecting to proceeding with the hearing. I mean, it, whenever. Whatever happens in this, there's going to be an up and down. There, there, there will eventually be a vote on on Kavanaugh, and he's going to get through. The, in, in the, if mm-hmm. if we if there was going to be some kind of eleventh hour, oh my gosh, look what we, what we learned about this guy. Um, we would have heard it already. We haven't. The guy's going to get through, and all of the rest of this, as you say, is kabuki theater. Which um, I, I wonder actually if it if it backfires on Democrats. Um, you've got these protesters in the hearing room this morning, sort of making this. I mean, it does not look good. I think no. for Democrats who are trying to appeal to the middle of the country. This is a really good point because, of course, they have to look like they are fighting. You yes. Know, uh, yes. You know, they have to look in for their base. They have to look like they did everything. On the other hand, this overplaying the, of the hand is a is, is a long running. You know, I, I, tradition. I think for for both the left, parties, how they, how they, both parties do they, it. But. Yeah, exactly. How how they they turn they they lose public sympathy because yes. they 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 go too far. Speaking of this, and I you know let's uh, over the weekend and you know. I, for the last year and a half, we've had this conversation. Well, you know, let, let's. This was the worst, or you know, here's a moment that uh, that ought to be a game changer. And of course, nothing ever is. Um, but there was this extraordinary. You know, I, I'm almost editing myself as I'm talking here. But it was really extraordinary that one tweet that the president put out yesterday yes. where he's ripping Jeff Sessions, which of course is not new. This has become now a, a you know a usual sort of thing. But he specifically attacked Jeff Sessions for the indictment of two sitting Republican congressmen who are, shall we say, waist deep or neck deep in absolute sleaze, the Chris Collins indictment and the Duncan Hunter indictment, which have nothing to do really with Jeff Sessions. They were indicted by the local um, U.S. attorneys, Chris Collins, for insider trading, trading, Duncan Hunter for uh, just obviously, you know, large scale grifting of taking a lot of his campaign cash for himself. But the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch, attacking the attorney general for the indictment of two corrupt members of his own party. Now, this is one of those where you want to stick a pin in and say, you know, what are we actually seeing here? We have a president who has been open about having his Justice Department go after his political enemies and now ripping them for 
actually enforcing the law when it comes to his political buddies. That was really, even by Trumpian standards, rather extraordinary, wasn't it? You know, and I don't think it has any direct relationship to the Kavanaugh hearing, but it does reinforce this president's either complete ignorance or indifference or hostility to what what most people have thought of as the rule of law. Yeah, and I want to return to the tweet, but uh, because I'm a positive guy, Charlie, if you can find a sort of a positive sheen on this, it's um, it speaks well, actually, of Jeff Sessions' Justice Department that under this, um, what we now know as public and what very well may be happening privately uh, behind the scenes on the, the, the pressure from essentially the boss, the, 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 the head of the executive branch, that they're willing to pursue um, these, these indictments and who knows what else. And of course, we could Talk all day about the 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 um, with withstanding the attacks on the Mueller investigation. Um, you, you know the, the the Justice Department in, in in that sense should be commended for continuing this and for not buckling. Maybe there are things that they have buckled to political pressure for, but um, the fact that they have it on this is is I think commendable. And 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 to your point about the president's tweet. Um, it, it, it is remarkable. I mean, because it's not simply that he's complaining about um, uh, uh, about. Jeff Sessions, and it's a continuation of his complaints about Jeff Sessions. It's it's the very specific idea that um, is sort of in, in embedded in that tweet, which is um, that Jeff Sessions should have considered, as the top law enforcement uh, uh, officer in the country, should have considered the fact that these were seats, these House seats, that uh, are may now be competitive in the upcoming midterm elections. He said during a midterm year um, that he allowed this to happen. I guess the, the, the other side of it, if you play devil's advocate, you, there, there is this idea that, um, oh, well, they only go after Republicans um, in an election year. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's cuckoo stuff. But um, I think, again, this well, is he- where Trump kind of plays to a kind of conspiracy mindedness among uh, among his voters and his base that while well, the, the 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 big bad government is coming after these guys who are totally disposable in terms of members of Congress like I guess Collins was the first to endorse Trump but I mean you could put in another Republican there and in, in, in the, into those districts uh, and they and they'd be just fine they vote just fine it's this it's this very um, I think uh, uh, it's it's not good yeah. for trust in institutions, and it creates more distrust. Well, it's it's also an indication of how our politics has shifted. That a story like this, which really should be a you know at, at the center of, of of days, if not weeks, of discussion and debate, is is probably going to be um, you know old news by the time this podcast people listen to this uh, podcast. You know, along these same lines, I did think it, of course. Once again, um, I think a couple of reporters said that they were struck by the lack of reaction from Republicans to all of this, which, again, I think we've kind of gotten used to that. On the other hand, Jeff Flake uh, put out a statement that was quite strong. But but, you know, leaving him aside for just a second, have you noticed Ben's the the tone from Ben Sass over the last week or so, uh, Nebraska senator? who has uh, his Twitter feed alone, and I'm sorry to keep talking about Twitter, but his willingness to be outspoken on this, um, he's always been somewhat outspoken, but I almost get the sense that that uh, that Sass is, uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I was going to say making a move, but that's Lay- not totally what I, what I meant. But, but he Laying groundwork is, a, for something? I, I don't know, or he's decided, you know, I just need to, at, at this moment with these things happening, I need to speak out. And he tweeted out a piece from, I think it was Christianity Today, that was really this really strong critique of evangelical Christians who have decided to 
you know, look the other way and, you know, and, and, and support Trumpism. Uh, his comments on the president's uh, uh, rhetoric and language and conduct have been very pointed. Uh, it's almost as if he just and, and again, I could be projecting or I could just be naive that there's something about the passing of John McCain that has really touched a nerve with him. And that somebody asked me, you know, who would be the successor to John McCain in the Senate? And I really couldn't come up with anybody other than, well, maybe Ben Sass, possibly Mitt Romney. You know, maybe Mitt Romney is watching this thinking, OK, I have this opportunity to step up. But but Sass is the guy who seems to be responding uh, the most significantly. Yes, um, I would. I would if, if if I had to make a choice between which one would be the John. Of course, there will never be another John McCain in the Senate, but is somebody who would maybe step in that role. Uh, I would tip it more to Mitt Romney in terms of um, he's he's much less um, he's much less vulnerable I think than Ben Sass. Nebraska, yes, is a very Republican state, but he's actually pretty unpopular among Republicans there for the reasons that um, uh, that that his latest tweets uh, demonstrate that that he's willing to come out and and, and criticize um, President Trump. Um, I don't know if there's been a change um, if if just the stakes are, I mean, the, the particular tweet that he's responding to in his in his strong statement, I mean, was as we've just discussed, is so sort of um, much more remarkable than any recent um, uh, Trump statements makes the the import of what Sass res- responded to uh, all that much more. I, I think, look, Sass, and, and it's interesting that that article that he that he published or that he that he sent out uh, from Christianity Today, it's not as if Ben Sass is kind of a um, uh, is not a, a part of that community. I mean, he used to be the president of an evangelical college right. Right. in Nebraska. He comes from that world. Um, and so it, it's all the stronger uh, for that. I, I, I want to defend actually um, the Ben Sass approach to, from some of the liberal critics of it um, who say um, – Oh well, like all he does is say statements, but he votes ninety nine percent of the time right. with the president. All these things. Um, this I think is particularly um, wrong headed for a senator. A senator is um, has a platform, maybe not as uh, big as it used to be, uh, maybe not as big as it ought to be, but um, he's one of one hundred uh, people in the um, upper house of the United States Congress of another coequal branch uh, of the government. Um, and this is a role. It's not the only role. It is maybe maybe it's not the most important role at the end of the day, but it is a important and uh, powerful role that the Senate ought to play. And it was it, we can just look at the way that people are remembering John McCain and the way he used um, that position to 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 uh, to, to take on uh, things he disagreed with, to speak out. Um, it, you know, it, it means something to have a, a member of the United States Senate from the president's own party saying these things. No, uh, maybe so, it's yeah. a predicate for, for, for something else where he – I mean there's been talk that he's he may challenge the president uh, in the Republican primary. Maybe this is – we're starting to see more of that ground uh, being groundwork being laid. No, your, your your point about Romney, I think, is uh, is 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 on target. You know, both given his age and given the fact that I do think that he does think about his legacy. You know, that you, you probably saw that quote over the weekend. Somebody asked uh, Rudy Giuliani, "Are you concerned that your current activities might tarnish uh, your legacy?" And Giuliani said something like, "I don't care about my legacy because I'll be dead anyway." Which is really rather extraordinary. Um, I I, th- I think that Mitt Romney is not in that you know quote unquote philosophical school. Um, and the one thing that really does come out of the John McCain experience this whole last week is is the you would hope that 
other members of the Senate would ask themselves, how will I be remembered? Which is, I think, is a good thing um, that, that reminding people that being a United States senator is a is a really significant uh, you can be a, a significant historical player, you know, a la, you know, Henry Clay or John McCain, as opposed to being a, you know, a constitutional spear carrier here. So um, but, you know, in many ways, Mitt Romney. I think uh, we'll come in as a freshman United States senator thinking about, you know, what role should the United States Senate play? What role should I play? Do I want to be a backbencher? How will I be remembered? All right. I want to get to a couple of other things, including um, one of the elephants in the room. We hadn't talked about just briefly this, uh, you know, what's happening on the the Trumpian right involving social media. It was rather extraordinary uh, moments over the weekend. But before we do that, boy, this is timely. You know, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by Calm. Now, this this is interesting because I actually downloaded this app before they decided to be advertisers. You know, a lot of words have been used to describe the current state of the country. We've been talking about it. Calm is not one of them. And I don't think, you know, one of the reasons I downloaded this, because I don't think I've taken a deep breath in the last two years. That's why I think it's interesting that we're partnering for this particular, for the listeners of this podcast, partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. Just five minutes of Calm can change your whole day. And given the pace of the news cycle, it really takes an act of will just to stop, just to think, and this really helps. And I, 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 look, you know, anything that provides a little bit of a break is worthwhile. So if you head to calm.com, slash standard, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships. You probably need that today, right? Including a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. They have sleep stories, like their bedtime stories for grown-ups, and so much more. So you have a choice. You can sit there ready as you're ready to go to bed, you know, going through your Twitter feed, which I do, I have to admit, or you can do this. Trust me, one's going to work better than the other. So for a limited time, the Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That's calm.com slash standard. And so when they, they said, hey, wait, we have a new advertiser, I said, this is really funny because I actually already downloaded I, that. I might so need Michael this for Michael, my four-year-old. That sounds like a really good I, way to just end the day yeah, for him. I can make a list in my head of all the people I know that can really, really <laughs> benefit from, from this. So I, I, over the weekend, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, maybe we'll devote a whole podcast at some point, uh, Laura Ingram and others on the Trumpian right um, took a sharp turn. I don't even want to say right on the on the, uh, whether or not the government should step in and regulate uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Google. With uh, Ingram going so far as to suggest that the federal government should seize the content of these private companies to deal with uh, the allegations of bias against conservatives. And, you know, this was, again, one of those moments where I, I tweeted out, hey, conservatives, are you OK with this? Because I'm trying to keep up because, you know, last time I checked in, the the conservative movement would have been um, extremely hostile to the notion of a federal government takeover of a private company. You know, I 
I, I don't expect that this is going to happen, but it, it really is a sort of a new, you know, turning the page of a new chapter. How far are you people willing to go? Are you really so concerned? Um, you know, have you, have you so abandoned the whole concept of free market that, that you're OK with this? Yeah, look, I think popular conservative politics now, um, certainly populist conservative politics, are mostly concerned about questions of power, not questions yeah. of principle or sort of rules that 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 government ought to follow and civil society ought to follow. It is simply a question of um, who has the power and how do we um, bend that power or, or 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 grab as much of that power for our side as possible. I mean, I mean, you sort of you you set it up nicely, Charlie. I mean, if you actually um, sort of take this to the logical conclusion that that some of these commentators are taking it, um, when when Democrats get back into power, and they will, maybe not as soon as Democrats think they will, but when they are back in power, um, how do you think that's going to go for people who they disagree with? Um, this is the problem with the way that norms and, 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 and sort of rules are broken, is that the other side goes, well, we don't have to follow those either um, at this point. So I, I think this is this is sort of a, it's a very cynical view, actually, uh, by, by the the conservatives who are proposing this. It's this idea that, um, yes, of course, the the Silicon Valley CEOs and, and executives at these places like Facebook and Twitter um, are liberal. Uh, and so, A, they must be making um, uh, uh, very overtly political decisions about what they um, about what they ban or what they allow on. Um, and so um, therefore, we must uh, have a government takeover of that. It's this very um, unconservative approach. No, you're, you're right. I mean, I think you just hit it there. That it's become far more about power, about winning, about liberal tears, um, about, uh, you know, crushing the opposition than it is about anything remotely. Involving as if it's sort of as prison. if it's the end of uh, of 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 the of the time that all these questions can be debated. As if sort of uh, hold on, we we got to grab onto this because if we don't do this now, it's all over for conservatives. Which is a yeah. kind of a weird impulse when the country really kind of pivots back and forth between the different political sides and ideological sides um, uh, pretty regularly. Oh boy, no, and the the the, the cycle of. The, the cycle that it would set off would be uh, it is pretty nightmarish. You have a piece up on the Weekly Standard. I wanted to uh, to make sure that we talk about this in the few minutes we have about uh, California changing its primary and the significance of that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, why we should keep our eye on California, which particularly in the presidential years and the nominating process has has really been almost an afterthought for as long as I can remember, even though it's the biggest state in the country. Right, right, and um, there's this there's this idea in politics, and it's very popular in California that California is sort of ten years ahead of where the rest of the country is in terms of where it's going, and that, and that tends to be true, and um, and maybe much farther ahead in terms of environmental regulations in particular, which um, California sets the sort of standard um, and beyond. Um, but it, it, it is a little curious, and California. This is not for a lack of trying. California wants to be um, and has been moving its primary up from the sort of typical June date um, for several cycles. They haven't done the last two cycles. Um, but uh, it's something where by the time it gets to California, even when they move it up early, um, the decisions have generally been made. Like one big exception to this 
um, which actually kind of went sort of uh, went against what California was trying to do, which is they want to be big players, particularly in Democratic politics. Um, Hillary Clinton actually won California in 2008, which gave her enough delegates to really keep her her um, primary uh, 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 campaign going for longer than it really ought to have. I mean, Obama was essentially wrapping up the nomination, but she won a member in Texas and in California. Uh, and that was enough for her. Of course, she didn't end up winning the nomination. So California really didn't get what it was seeking, which was sort of to to uh, make a statement and, and, and make a choice and help make that choice for the Democratic Party. That's what um, I found they're trying to do now. Last year, Jerry Brown signed a law moving uh, the California 2020 presidential primary up to March 3rd, which is is the first mm. Super Tuesday mm. a month after the Iowa caucuses, and uh, you know three and a half weeks after uh, uh, after the New Hampshire primary. So uh, California is trying to play a big role, and I think one of the big differences here is that. There are a lot of potential Californians who want to sure. run. I should say there are Californians who are potentially trying to run for president. Kamala Harris, Eric Garcetti, who knows how many celebrities might end up deciding to run. Uh, and so that sort of changes the ball game. And in an expensive state like California, being a favorite son or daughter might uh, might make California relevant. And, and that's what they're at least trying to do. I mean, that, that really could have dramatic impact on the way the, the nomination plays out also. And this comes right after the, the Democrats uh, water down their whole superdelegate their super delegate rules. That's, so, that's uh, right. Well, and, and that and that makes it interesting because it's all the delegates are proportional in in Democratic primaries anyway. Yeah. Um, so even if you aren't a um, a Californian, you could um, pick up a lot of delegates if the field is still crowded by March third. Which there's no reason to think after the 2016 Republican primary that it, that it won't be that there won't still be a bunch of um, uh, candidates trying to vie for this. Of course, it could all uh, they could all consolidate by California and it won't matter again, which will make you know, California and Democrats very angry. The other thing I didn't get into in the piece, real quick, Charlie, is this could oddly. There are some Republicans who think it could have an impact in a Republican primary if there is a uh, a challenger to Donald Trump. Um, mm. Republicans are very conservative for the most part. Not that there are that many in California, uh, and so and it's a, a very uh, Trump has a lot of support among California Republicans there, but there is kind of a um, a rump of more moderate Republicans um, uh, within the state. And if there, if it seems competitive on the Republican side, which I think most people don't think it is, but but if it if it is, um, it's it is winner take all for Republicans in California. But crazier things have happened, and and that would be that would be sort of remarkable. I didn't get into that in the piece. It's much more mm -hmm. speculative, but um, it, it'd be interesting. It'll, it'll be interesting to watch, no matter what happens. Yeah, of course, we have to get through the 2018 election um, just, and very briefly because we're running out of time here. But the, the uh, Washington Post, uh, is the Washington Post ABC poll uh, comes out with some very, very dramatic numbers today showing the Democrats uh, surging back into a lead on the generic ballot. I was struck by the fact, though, that they are, you know, at, at this late date still still polling registered voters, which I don't know, Mike, does that strike you as odd that, that we haven't shifted the model from registered voters to likely voters, particularly when you're dealing with an off-year election? Yeah, it's, it's a problem. I mean, I don't – maybe there's some methodological reason for doing it, but I, I mean – this is actually I think suggests that the the poll overstates actually the Democratic uh, advantage in uh, in the midterm elections um, uh, because these registered voters tend to yeah that's right yeah. The, the the closer you get to likely voters um, the generally it gets it gets a little more Republican now this year could be totally different because it's a resistance year and and uh, and all the other juggling that's been going on but it. it 
you should talk to David Byler about this. I'd be interested to know what his thoughts mm-hmm. are. But um, as, as a kind of a layman who, who's been watching polls as I cover elections for the last almost decade, um, it is frustrating to see registered voters still in September. I mean, like, like we said at the beginning, it's a new season. It's September. It's time to uh, it's time to get real and get some uh, some likely voters in there. No, I, I, I had the same reaction to it. Uh, hey, Michael, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. On our first podcast of September, the fall season is is open. Um, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.